Most acquaintances that I have don't know I have sickle cell. Only my close friends know that I have sickle cell. So it's something that I don't really like to share. When I come into the ER, I'm just like, okay, going in here, they're gonna think I'm addicted to pain medication. How do I convince them that I'm not? The pain is there. It's not something that you can ignore, but I have to ignore it just to get the day going. When my daughter was very young, I told her from the beginning, you're going to college, you're going to succeed. We gotta figure out how to maneuver in this life. These are the cards that we have, we gotta deal them. We gotta play what we've been given. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. The voices you just heard were gathered from individuals and families living with sickle cell disease by the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Sickle cell disease is a genetic blood disorder that causes excruciating, acute, and chronic pain, among other health complications. Anyone can be born with it, but it is particularly prevalent among people of African descent. One in 13 Black Americans are born with the trait necessary to develop the disease. But in in an historic development, just this past Friday, the Food and Drug Administration approved two new genetic therapies for sickle cell. One of them will be the first human use of the gene editing tool called CRISPR. The scientist who developed that tool won the Nobel Prize for it a few years ago. There's some complicated science to understand in this news, but the take-home is we're witnessing a big step forward for a disease that has been a horror for so long in so many lives, at least 100,000 people in the U.S. and millions around the world. So we're going to spend the show talking about sickle cell and what the new therapies mean for people and families living with it. I'm joined by Ashley Valentine. She's a researcher who spent years studying sickle cell, both from health policy perspectives and in clinical trials. She also partnered with her brother, Marcus, to create the group Six Cells, which is an advocacy and organizing group for people living with sickle cell. And Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So can you help us understand just the big picture of this news? First off, as someone who spent so many years working on sickle cell, How do you explain what the FDA's approval of these two new therapies means? Yeah, the FDA approval is really important. It's a big deal for the landscape of sickle cell disease. I actually was in the car with my mom going to get um, pick up my car from the mechanic. And when we got the news, I cried first Mm. and then she cried and then we called my dad. And my dad was also emotional thinking about how many people this can help with sickle cell and Why this is so important is we've been left without resources to care for people with sickle cell for almost the entirety since this disease has been discovered. So in in a short amount of time since really drug development has picked up in sickle cell in 2014, we have had some pretty major approvals. We had two drugs approved in 2019, one in 2017, and now we're here talking about gene therapies. Some see this as curative therapies, but therapies that are giving people uh, their lives back away from sickle cell disease. And you said some see these as curative therapies. Help me understand that piece of it. Do, do we consider this a cure? 
Yeah. And so I think that the the way we're talking about the gene therapies, I think it will evolve over time. The way I see it is you go from a state of sickle cell where you're having this chronic excretionary pain, you're having bone damage, you're having the reality that without mitigating the disease, your organs will fail and you will ultimately die in many cases to not having that. Mm-hmm. So whether we call that a cure or whether we call that mitigating the disease, um, I think the end, the end point is what I'm really happy to see. Right, right. Whichever way it goes, the people's lives are going to get a lot better if they're able to get these therapies. Um Let's try to bite off the science a little bit, just enough for people to understand what we're talking about. Um, There are two gene therapies that have been approved. As I said, one of them uses the Nobel Prize winning gene editing tool CRISPR. Are you able just in simple terms to explain what this therapy is and, and how it works? I will do my best. So full disclosure, I am not a doctor, but I have sat through a lot of informational webinars and education meetings. And my mom is a brilliant nurse that made us say words like acetaminophen instead of Tylenol. (laughs) So one is a gene therapy. So that is the Bluebird Bio um, treatment. I don't know the name of it now because they just got new names and I haven't memorized Mm -hmm. them yet. But one is adding a gene, so it's a gene addition, and then there's the gene editing, so that's the one you talked about. So the CRISPR technology, um, that is actually going in and editing the gene, so it's almost cutting. So right. if you want to think about it in visuals, the the one gene therapy is almost like, uh, they say, an envelope, so it's putting into your body to change the genes, and then the other is like scissors where it's cutting um, the gene inside the body. Right. And then just a, a little more of this to understand why those are a big deal for sickle cell itself. Maybe we also need to just level set on what sickle cell is. We understand what it does. It causes these painful, uh, it causes you to live in this chronic and acute pain, but or both chronic and acute pain. But what actually is sickle cell? Yeah. So sickle cell is a blood disorder. It's a genetic blood disorder. And that's something I want to say first and foremost. You hear a lot. We talk a lot about the race and the ethnic makeup of the people who impact sickle cell. But fundamentally, it's it's a hemoglobinopathy. So it's a disease of the hemoglobin, your blood. And what happens as a healthy person or someone that has healthy hemoglobin, our bodies produce whole red blood cells and the red blood cells carry oxygen throughout the entire system. So if you think about what happens when you have circulation loss or you block circulation somewhere, that's what the sickle cells do to the body. So someone with sickle cell, their body isn't producing those those round, healthy blood cells that bring oxygen to the various parts of the body. Their body is producing these stiff, rigid blood cells that don't carry oxygen and they die really fast. And what that looks like, the way it manifests in the disease is that you have basically loss of circulation to major organs. And we know that if you don't have circulation to a specific organ, it dies. So we talk about the pain of sickle cell, but strokes are common in sickle cell, seizures, chronic leg ulcers. Many people don't have spleens. We have heart failure. We have damage to the eyes, joint replacements all over. Sickle cell is a very, very severe disease. It's just until the disease starts to break down the body, it's invisible. And so this pain is one of the hallmark complications of sickle cell. It it is this excruciating pain. When you see someone go through a pain crisis, it's the most gut-riching thing ever. And the pain is usually the indicator that something in their body 
is losing oxygen or, or is blocking the circulation. Right. And and you 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 do want to point out that while race is a really important part of this, we have to first talk about the disease itself. Help me understand that distinction. This has been very important for African Americans, for people of African descent. Yeah. So what happens with sickle cell disease is the way it's taught first is off of race and ethnicity. And so it's taught that it's this disease that only Black people can get. And that's not true. So thinking about how people get sickle cell first to help us understand what's going on here, it is an evolutionary response to malaria. So basically anywhere in the world where there's malaria, there's also sickle cell. So India has the highest rates of sickle cell. India and Nigeria have the highest rates of sickle cell globally. So what it looks like in the United States is that it disproportionately impacts black people. But there's also people here who have Mediterranean background, Mm -hmm. who are Hispanic, that have sickle cell disease. But in the U.S., it it does disproportionately impact black people. That is really eye-opening for me. Thank you for that, Ashley, because I didn't really understand that that was the why, that this goes back to malaria. Mm -hmm. Um, And just as we start to head towards a break, and we're going to come back to all of this in more detail later in the show, but I also want to just talk about one more therapy um, because the genetic therapies, as you said, they're not the first to emerge. And some people will recall a big story uh, not that long ago about the FDA approving a bone marrow treatment uh, that people considered, is that going to be a cure? Can you explain that and just just give its distinction from, from what we're talking about now? Yes, but high level, I'm not a doctor. So what I will tell you is (laughs) um, bone marrow transplant requires a match. So you're getting the bone marrow is where the sickle cells are made. And so that is being transplanted so that it's not producing sickle cells or it's producing sickle cell trait. So there's many differences, but one of the distinctions I can draw here is that the gene therapies don't require donors and the bone marrow transplants do require donors. So when you're talking about populations like the Black population or some of the Hispanic populations, there's less likely to have donors and donor banks. Um, and so that that's one of the major differences where we could see there being a benefit in the gene therapies here in sickle cell. You, they're less likely to have donors and donor banks. Can you just unpack that for a second so we know what you're talking about? Yeah. And so this, I think, is a health equity piece. Y- you'll see that don't like if we think about blood donor because this is this is something that many of us do you'll see that there's always a, a need for black blood donors or donors from different ethnicity groups because you're more likely to be able to accept blood you have to match a certain blood type in order to receive blood and so people with sickle cell oftentimes will receive blood transfusions and if they don't have the right match for blood they can they can produce antibodies against the blood so you you don't want that So you're more likely to have a match for blood donors if you're coming from the same ethnic or racial group. And so that's why there's this call for an increased need for black blood donors or Hmm. certain other ethnic groups. And so the same also um, is applicable to bone marrow donors or bone marrow um, transplants. So you, you need you can have full sibling matches, for instance, or you can try to go to a donor bank to to get um, a, a match for the donor. So mm-hmm. we see less of that. Um, so maybe in the future, when the way that we do bone marrow um, donation is more equitable, maybe we'll see that there's more matches for some of these yeah. minority populations. But right now, that's not just that's yeah. not the case. 
So, but the take home being that one of the big differences here now with the gene editing or with the gene therapy is that it is potentially available to a lot more people as a consequence of uh, not needing those donors. We're going to have to take a break. I'm talking with Ashley Valentine, a sickle cell researcher and advocate about the groundbreaking gene therapies that the FDA has just approved for this painful disease. Coming up, I recently connected with a young Congolese-American woman. Just this summer, she underwent the bone marrow transplant we were just talking about. She's going to tell us her story of of living with sickle cell for 21 years and what that treatment does and does not mean for her now. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This past Friday, the FDA approved two groundbreaking gene therapies that could essentially cure people of sickle cell disease, which is a painful blood disorder that has plagued millions of people around the world for so long. Previously, the only real therapy available to people living with sickle cell was a bone marrow transplant. And I recently spoke with someone who's been through that treatment. Magali Ganda is 21 years old, and her whole life has been shaped by sickle cell disease. From the time she was born, Magali has dealt with unimaginable pain. But this past August, she was finally able to undergo that bone marrow transplant. I connected with her to hear her reflections on a life with sickle cell and what having a cure, as it's called, means to her. And a warning, Magali is very straightforward about the mental health challenges that she has faced as a young person living with this disease. Our conversation does include discussion of suicide. And if you are having suicidal thoughts, help is available through the National Suicide Crisis Lifeline. You can speak to someone today by calling or texting 988. I caught up with Magali while she was in the hospital for one of many follow-up treatments for her transplant. Hospitals have sadly been a common part of her life. Do you mind just describing, you know, what what you're there for today? What's going on for you today? Yeah, um, I'm in the hospital right now because I was having a pain crisis and I was throwing up quite a bit. Yesterday, I threw up nine times, and so they wanted to monitor me and make sure the new medications I'm on aren't effect, aren't the ones causing it. Yeah, and so you've lived with this for 21 years, and it's sort of been days like today for most much of your life? Is that the way to understand it? Um, that you're kind yeah. of always in and out of care? Yep, absolutely. I've had like 200, 200 or 300. I need to ask my dad, but I've had over 100 admissions. Wow. In 21 years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot. And it's it's a really, it's a life-threatening disease. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it, it was, it's been hard. It's a depressing when majority of your life is being in the hospital. And when it comes to sickle cell, it's it's, an, it's extremely painful. Think of a migraine and like a really bad migraine and imagine that on all of like anywhere on your body 10 times. That's mm. what sickle cell feels like. Mm. And now due to the sickle cell, I have gone something called a vascular necrosis and it's a loss of blood supply to the bones. So I have it in both of my hips and both of my shoulders. 
Um, my hips are the ones that are really like deteriorating, but ho- I'm hoping it'll get better now that I'm doing what the doctors are uh, mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. You have re- received some treatment for this. We're, we're talking today about a new gene editing therapy um, that could mm-hmm. treat sickle cell. But this summer, you had a different treatment, a bone marrow transplant. So just yeah. in, in first off, just in layman's terms, can you describe what that treatment was? Uh, basically, um, you do radiation, then chemotherapy. Then they take whoever your donor is, they take their blood, there's some other medications, and they put it in. And what it does is it gets like rid of your your cells so that you have healthy ones and you don't have to um, to have sickle cell anymore. Um, but I'm going to admit it's not easy because you're in the hospital for months. Because I was in the, I've been in the hospital since July. Mm. With this treatment, yeah. And so you said part of the this bone marrow treatment, it was you said so I don't have sickle cell anymore. Does that mean that you're cured from it? Yes, I'm cured from it. But since it's already done damage to my body, I because ha- my, my nerves are messed up. Um, they said I will still have some chronic pains, but it's better now because I don't have to worry about being in the ICU because I had a bad crisis and stuff like that. Right, right. So this treatment, which this is, again, the thing that predated the gene therapy we're talking about that's in the news now, it did, in fact, get rid of the sickle cell for you, but because you've lived with it for 21 years, the damage to your body is what you now have to live with. Um, exactly. How common was this this treatment, the bone marrow therapy, Um up until now, is this something that a lot of people with sickle cell were able to do, or was it experimental? It was an experimental. It's a it's a choice. I had said no when I was first offered it for years because I was afraid. Um, you choose if you want to do it, but usually they'll recommend it like for people that are, like always get extreme pains like me. Mm-hmm. But some hospitals will only take you if you're a certain age. So depending on how old you are, um, you can do it. But most people don't do that stuff because they're afraid. Uh, the majority of people with sickle cell, I know they don't want to do it because they're, they're like, what's the point if I'm still going to have pain? Yeah. I'm I'm very blunt about what actually like goes on. I don't tell them like, yeah, I don't have any pain anymore. Like, I'm not going to tell them that because I know that's not true. It helps, so, but it doesn't make everything go away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How'd your parents first realize you have sickle cell? I mean, you know, you're it's something you're born with. But it's not like you can communicate that pain as an infant. So how did they how did they find out that you have the disease? So when I was three months old, I was crying and I was holding my leg because since I was a newborn, they like new, newborn babies are crying, but they don't cry and like hold a certain part. Mm. But for me, I was holding my leg crying, and that's when the doctor suspected I had sickle cell. And so he did a test, and it turned out I did. Uh, and that's how my parents found out I had it. It was a surprise because they, my mom um, thought she didn't have the trait. And then my dad knew he had the trait. But he thought my mom didn't have it since her mother told her they don't have sickle cell in their family. But it turned out that uh, her father did have it, but she didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so when they had me, I ended up having the sickle cell trait. They were surprised and they were stressed out. Yeah. So this is also how your mother found out. Your your illness is how your mother found out she had the sickle cell trait. Yep. 
Yep, exactly. That had to be tough. Absolutely. Because you feel like it's your own fault for the rest of your life sometimes. And what about yourself? You grew up with sickle cell. So how did you manage that? I mean, did you talk to your friends about it? Yeah, so I never said anything. Nobody knew I had sickle cell. They, the majority of my friends just found out this year because I, even my friends from middle school. Wow. They, yeah, because I, w- I was really good at hiding it. But they, some people did uh, ask me, oh, where were you? Why, why weren't you here? And they get nosy. They ask a lot of questions. But I just said I had the flu or I just made some something up that is common. Mm-hmm. Why did you feel like yeah. you had to hide it? Um... I, I just, I felt embarrassed. It just felt embarrassing because everybody is like, you know, they can do stuff, they're normal, but then you can't do half of the stuff that everyone does, mm. like, in your whole life. Like, I can't, couldn't play in the snow. Um, I I had to quit gymnastics because it was giving me too many crises. Um, yeah. When did you first realize just how much it would affect your life? Um, middle school. Because when I was in middle school, I missed, like, what, 60 days out of the school year because I was in the hospital so much. And then I was, that's when I was thinking, like, you know, how am I supposed to live if I can't take care of myself when I'm, when I'm in a crisis? Huh. How am I going to get a job? How am I going to keep my job if I'm always quitting because of the, a crisis? And how did that make you feel, thinking about those kinds of challenges in your future? Um... I, I was suicidal, to be honest with you. I was suicidal. I did try to kill myself uh, at that time. And because I was just like, there's no point of this. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking just in my head, I was like, like, I can't do anything. Nobody wants, most people don't hire you anyway when you have a disability. They're supposed to, but they most people don't. And so it's a lot of discrimination as well. Uh. <sighs> I just, I want to linger on that bit for a minute. Um, and I know it might be, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but as a, as a middle school student thinking I'd rather end my life than live like this, how yeah. did, how did you get out of that hole? How did you find a way out of that? Um, I honestly, I just ignored it, but my depression got really bad last year, and then I tried to kill myself again. Um, but my family was really was there, and they helped me out a lot, so I'm very grateful for them. Um, it's it, it was sad. Like in my head, I was just thinking, like, first of all, most men don't want to marry a girl, a woman that's sick. So I was thinking, like, it's gonna affect me financially. It's gonna affect my relationships and like social and all that stuff. If I can't do anything, I've been here in, since July. I've missed birthdays, hangouts, stuff like weddings, you know. So it becomes very uh, stressful. But I'm on medication. I got a psychiatrist uh, after that attempt, and they put me on an antidepressant, and that's what's been helping me. Well, I am glad. And to my hear. dad as well. And your dad as well. How, how is your dad yeah. helping you? He's always, always there for me. My dad's a businessman. He has a business in Congo. Um, and so he goes there a lot for his business. And then once he comes, if I just say like, you know, you need to come back, he will come back since I was younger. He's always been like that. He's been with me my whole life. He's very supportive. He's very kind. 
and he's patient. So um, like my dad's my best friend. So I'm very grateful that he was there for me. Mm. I am so happy that you have that and have that support. So your bone marrow transplant, just to talk about Mm -hmm. that for a second, your bone marrow transplant was dependent on a family match for a donor. Yes. Who was your donor and, and when did you find out there was a match? My donor was my brother, and he he was a half match. So a half match is someone that has like their cells match yours. It's not a full match, but it matches it a little bit. So they used his blood and put it inside of me, and now I have his blood inside of me, and my sickle cell is gone. And so I'm really thankful for for what he did. Mm. Pretty much, he healed me because without his blood, I would I would still be screaming in pain all the time. Yeah, that is certainly a blessing, and I am so happy that he was able to help. And how did you discover this treatment was an option for you? My doctor recommended it for me. Um, I was scared, so I said no for years, but then this year I changed my mind. When you say you were scared to do it, explain that. Why were you scared? Because, I mean, like, it's like it's not uh, like an easy thing. Some a lot of people would die during surgery. Like uh, I went in the hospital, but another hospital I went to, four people passed away from BMC. From but, the treatment itself, four people had died that you knew about. Yeah, because I was originally gonna do my uh, transplant at that hospital, but because those people died, they took everybody off the list to try and figure out what, like, what caused it, what's going on, and what's causing it. So it's now I understand why you were scared. It's quite a dangerous treatment. It you know it carries a lot of risk. But now that you've done it, I, you know I know that you still have a lot of challenges from the recovery and from the damage that sickle cell has done to your body over the years. But emotionally, do you feel any relief? I I do because now I'm thinking of all the stuff that I could not do, and now I can do it. So that mm-hmm. makes me like more excited about life now. Yeah, yeah. What are you excited to do? Um, Muay Thai and boxing. Muay Thai here. and boxing, okay. Yeah, it, it, it's a good way to vent your anger. And it's fun anyways. It's uh-huh. fun. I, I'm a really active person. Oh, or I skateboard too. And doing yeah. those things before would just be too painful and too dangerous. It, yeah, it was a crisis. The doctors, they weren't really too happy that I was like a skater. Because they was like, you have sickle cell, like you're doing too much. Let me just tell you, though, like that is remarkable to me. (laughs) You know, I I mean, that you were doing all of that. I can't do all of that. And I don't have pain problems. Uh, It's really remarkable. Yeah. I learned how to skateboard during quarantine because I was bored and I I have a skateboard and I never used it. But now I'm like, it's city. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I thank you, Magali, for sharing all of this. Um, and from a yeah, hospital, no no less. Um, it's a tough story, but one I think a lot of people can benefit from hearing. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you. That was Magali Ganda. This past August, she received a bone marrow transplant to cure her of her sickle cell disease itself. Though, as she said, she still lives with the intense complications it has caused in her body. 
And once again, if you are having suicidal thoughts, help is available through the National Suicide Crisis Lifeline. You can speak to someone today by calling or texting 988. I'm now joined once more by Ashley Valentine, a sickle cell researcher and advocate and co-founder of the advocacy group Sick Cells. And Ashley, Magalie covered a lot, but I do want to start with the mental and emotional health challenges she described. How common is that? I I gather that there are uniquely high rates of of suicidal ideation among people living with sickle cell. Well, what I will say first is I'm so proud of many of the sickle cell disease advocates. It's just this bravery and this resilience Mm -hmm. that you find in the sickle cell space that I think is unsung. And I know earlier we talked about how the the people who discovered CRISPR received Nobel Prizes, but it's I also think that the patients who enrolled in the trials, their families, the providers that presented these clinical trials to these patients, I I think the sickle cell disease community um, has a really strong hand in getting these treatments to market and something like the CRISPR, the CRISPR technology, that's going to benefit society. And it got here because of people like Magali who were brave enough to share their story and to share their story honestly and then had that family support to keep to keep them here. Yeah. And and before we take a break, just so while we're right on this topic, are there resources available for people struggling with mental health who have sickle cell? Are there uh, are there resources specifically for that community you could point people to? I would say specifically for the sickle cell disease community, it starts back with our healthcare providers. And I think having candid conversations with their healthcare providers are really important. And then in terms of this, the social support, there there's many sickle cell community-based organizations. So in your state, you can find local organizations. And on the Six Cells website, there's also a little map that has local community-based organizations. And while I po- point people there, so you have the medical interventions with your care teams, but then also at the community level, it helps to have that peer-to-peer support. So you can yeah. talk to someone who's going through some of this with you to know that you're not alone. Um, sickle cell can be isolating. So it really mm. does take a village to make us feel empowered and whole. I mean, any pain problem, I, anyone who's lived with it or lived with someone with it knows how isolating it can be. So I can only imagine. Uh, the website for Six Cells is sixcells.org, I assume? Yeah, Absolutely. Six cells, C-E-L-L-S dot org if you're looking for those resources. We need to take a break. Listeners, if you or someone in your life is touched by sickle cell disease, do you have a question about the new treatments or about dealing with the disease generally? Ashley Valentine has been a researcher, an advocate, and a family member to someone living with the disease. So she may have particular help for caretakers and other family members or people living with sickle cell disease. You can call us or you can text us with your questions about sickle cell, uh, how you're living with it, or where you can find resources for it. I'll talk more with Ashley and take your calls after a break. Stay with us. everyone. My name is Rahima and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. 
The handle for both is Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we are talking about the FDA's approval this past Friday of two groundbreaking gene therapies that could essentially cure people of sickle cell disease. Sickle cell is a painful blood disorder that has plagued millions of people around the world for so long with very little treatment available. I'm joined by Ashley Valentine, a sickle cell researcher and advocate and founder of the group Six Cells, which advocates and organizes with people living with sickle cell. We can take your calls if you have a question about sickle cell or about the new treatments available for it. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. I'm particularly interested in hearing from you if you or someone in your life is touched by the disease. Maybe you have a question about the new treatments. Maybe you have a question about dealing with the disease. Generally, we'll see if Ashley can offer any insight. You can call or text us 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And Ashley, uh, we heard Magalie's story before the break. She talked about how family stepped up for her. Her father was an, it has been an essential support. Uh, her brother was her donor for the bone marrow transplant she received. Your family has been deeply affected by sickle cell disease as well. Your late brother Marcus was born with it. He was five years older than you. And so you got to witness the impact of this disease firsthand. Can you tell us more about how it shapes a family? Yeah. So Magley touched on a lot of points that we see as common threads in sickle cell and sickle cell families. So much like Magley's family, my mom was screened before having children. She knew she had sickle cell trait. My dad was also screened before having children, and he was told he did not have sickle cell trait. So there's three of us. My oldest brother and myself, we don't have sickle cell trait or disease, and it wasn't until my mom was at the very end of her pregnancy with Marcus that my dad had to have oral mouth surgery, and they said, hey, by the way, you have sickle cell trait, Mm -hmm. and Marcus was born with sickle cell disease. So this this idea that, you know, families with sickle cell trait, and many of them don't know today, and they're still having children with sickle cell disease because they don't know. And so that, that family guilt is something that you all hold. Um, for the for the course of our lives. But I think outside of that part, many sickle cell families that we work with have really strong love and support for their people with sickle cell disease. And many of us who are blessed enough, we have that one caregiver. In my case, it was my mom. She's a she's a nurse. And so, you know, she handpicked Marcus's care team to make sure that he mm-hmm. was taken care of the best way he could be. And then my dad was always present, too, to to pick up where my mom couldn't. So I think that the families that we work with at Sickle Cell, it's very clear. These are the cards that we're dealt with. And so we will make it work. We will learn how to navigate these systems. And as best as we can, we'll have a good time doing it. Yeah. I'm also curious about the just the emotional work of that caretaking Um uh, I know you and your brother were incredibly close. Um, you founded this organization together. D- did you consider yourself a caretaker for him at any point in his life? I didn't. So that goes mm-hmm. back to our parents. My mm-hmm. parents made sickle cell so much fun. And oh, you, wow. again, you'll see this. Mm-hmm. I, I was often the princess of the playroom. So when 
Marcus would go into crisis and he was in and out of crisis all the time. It wasn't necessarily the, the broader family that took care of us because because much like the story we heard before, we didn't really share what was mm-hmm. going on because of that stigma attached to it. But my parents tried to make our life as normal as possible. So if Marcus was hospitalized during uh, Thanksgiving, for instance, well, we would have a Thanksgiving party at the uh-huh. hospital. Or my my parents would split up and my mom would have to go to the hospital with Marcus and my dad would take me to whatever activities. Or we had some really important neighbors at the end of the block that stepped in and were basically surrogate parents because if both parents were busy, then I would be in the car with the neighbor and they were making sure to get us to and from the activities. It wasn't until I was in high school, nearly in college, that the thought that, oh, wow, this could actually take Marcus's life early even crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. And and just to, to hit that very quickly, the, the, we, you said it wasn't until high school till it even crossed your mind, and then when it did, what 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 did you all have to confront together in that moment? Yeah. So the way sickle cell progresses is that there's different stages. So we see that during transition. So when peds leave the pediatric setting and they move to the adult setting, that's where we see the highest spike of mortality. And that's where the social consequences of being a disorder that disproportionately impacts black and brown people really kicks in. So in a pediatric setting, you have that full care team, you're cute, people are kind to you, when you get to that adult setting, it's the, sort of the cold reality that now you're a big person in that skin. And so people are, are treating mm. you for being a big person in that skin and mm. not having a blood disorder. So mm. the way that played out in my family is he was, Marcus was moved out of pediatrics into tra- into adulthood, adult care w- without a seamless transition. And in that time, he was taken off of blood transfusions, which is a, trans- which is a therapy for sickle cell and put on hydroxyurea, which he didn't really respond well to, and he developed seizures. And the repeat seizures um, made him very, very sick. He'd have full seizures and he would be unconscious for a full minute seizing. And my mom could not get anyone to believe her or help us. And so that's where we get to the part where she took it upon herself to basically interview her own care team for Marcus and put him into a new hospital and his provider up until the day he died was the most outstanding provider that I've ever met. And I think one of the best humans mm-hmm. that I've ever met because he he listened to my mom. He didn't see a black woman. He didn't see this lady that thinks that she's bossy. He saw that she was a colleague. She was smart. She was talking about science and clinical settings. And he, he took what she said for face value and treated mm-hmm. Marcus as if he would treat any any of his other oncology patients. So mm-hmm. it, it was that transition moment where I really saw the ugliness of what society sees sometimes when they see people with sickle cell, but we were able to move through that and find a care team that would make the rest of his life, the rest of our life, just, just really great. Here's to mom. Good job, mom. Shout out to mom. Shout out to mom. Let's go to a caller. I want to start with somebody that Ashley introduced us to, actually. Tristan Lee is in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. He's a patient advocate who has been living with sickle cell himself since 1983. And Tristan, I gather you wanted to bring up the cost of these new treatments, yeah? Yes. So my question is, because, you know, as Ashley was saying, since sickle cell predominantly affects the black and brown community. And a lot of us, you know, have Medicare and Medicaid. So like that 
two million dollar price tag is kind of like um, maybe a deterrent. So it's like everybody wants to, you know, cure and wants to definitely go forward with it. But at the same time, I just feel like that two million dollar price tag could maybe be like a turn off to some people. So how could we actually um, tackle that to where maybe it's more affordable or mm-hmm. maybe like we find, you know, more funding in that and resources in that sense? Um, so that's like my main question. Spectacular question, Tristan. And Ashley, so first off, t- explain the $2 million price tag part. Um, and then secondly, um, to Tristan's point, wh- what does that mean for access to it? Yes, that's right. Also, hi, Tristan. <laughs> hey, Ashley. Um, <laughs> so the, the $2 million price tag, yes, sticker shock, um, that's called the list price. So in most cases, the list price doesn't make it to the patient. And so out of that price, the insurance is going to be paying for a lot of that. Hospitals are going to have a portion of that cost as well. And then the patient hopefully will get very little of that cost. But I understand why the price tag of 2.2 million in sickle cell is jarring. And some of this is we have to look at the historical context for sickle cell. This disease was discovered in 1910. And the first disease modifiers to ever be approved for sickle cell was hydroxyurea, and that was a generic drug, and it cost like 50 bucks a month. So you go from a 50 bucks a month drug to the next set of drugs being 80 to $100,000 a year at the list price to the next set of therapies being 2.2 million. You can see how that may appear unreasonable, but the reality is it's not. So Hmm. let's look at what sickle cell costs. So I pulled some stats here. On the system, it's estimated that sickle cell costs $2.9 billion annually to take care of people with sickle cell. That's the hospitalization cost. That's the cost of medications. And people still die young. We also know that on the family level, it costs about $10,000 a year to care for someone with sickle cell disease. And then the annual cost for that person is about $30,000 a year in healthcare expenditures. So the, the $2.2 million is that one-time cost, one cost. But after that, we're assuming that you don't have sickle cell disease anymore. It makes up for itself in the long run if you're talking about health economics. If we but look at think other- of the individual patient, though, because um, yeah. I just don't want people to lose sight in the middle of this. We're talking about $2.2 million kind of numbers. So your, your point is that that's the public investment in it. Um, and it's worth it when you consider the public investment. But what does it mean for the individual patient who might have to face that? I wouldn't say that's public investment in it. I would say that's going to be the cost that the insurance companies will be negotiating with with the manufacturers and then looking at hospitals. Mm-hmm. It, from our perspective, it should be and will be covered by insurance. And that's something that we do at Six Cells is that we work with commercial payers. So that's like the Blue Cross Blue Shields, the Aetna's. And then we also work with government payers. So that would be CMS. So that's Medicaid and Medicare to help them understand those pieces that I was laying out. Right. And so for the actual patient, the patient won't be spending $2.2 million for, for a therapy because that's the list price. So the, the, that cost and that price will be made up um, in other areas, and then you'll have these insurances paying for that. Right. Uh, let's go to Terry in Philadelphia. Terry, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for calling. Did you have a question for Ashley? Well, I have sort of a a, a comment, essentially. Um, Ashley is doing amazing work at Six Cells, and um, I had the pleasure of meeting um, 
and knowing the Valentine family, including Marcus. And I just wanted to say, because of this press and these new drugs, hopefully someone with sickle cell who isn't connected to the larger group can become connected. Because I met, when I met Marcus and others at the FDA um, in 2012, it changed my life. And being with other sickle cell patients, I have sickle cell myself, SC, and knowing that what you're going through is like normal, uh, it, it makes mm. you feel so different about your you having sickle cells. So it is um, it's important to connect with other sickle cell patients because you don't feel as isolated as you all were talking about before. And, um, and it's not just about, you know, all learning and, and learning about what's going on and learning about the new drugs, but it's also learning and connecting with people who literally know what you're going through. Right. Thank you so much for that, Terry. And Ashley, on this point of connecting with other folks that have it, and and I, I, it's so resonant to me to hear to know that it's not just you. You're not crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so uh, this is where I was saying the peer to peer is really important. The reason why it's important to find each other with sickle cell is because we face a lot. So if we're not believed in healthcare systems, if we're not believed in school, if you're not believed by your immediate family or your wider family about living with sickle cell, they just don't know about it. You, you sometimes are saying, am I being dramatic? Am I the only one? Why am I the only one like this? And then you start meeting other people from the community and you say, oh, there's all of us like this. You start to learn about new right. treatments. You start to know what worked for them, what worked for you. And I mean, you're going to find that in communities who have to rely on each other to navigate these systems that we we have to work within. Thank you, Terry, for sharing that. Uh, let's go to Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Johnny, welcome to the show. Hey, I was really dismayed and shocked to hear that the medical professionals can treat an adult or a teenager way different than a cute little child. I know it's human mm. nature, but that's for another day. My mm. question has to do with the long-term damages from sickle cell. Are all the damages to the body permanent, or can some of them be remediated? And in particular, I'm thinking about the latest research to do with reconnecting nerve tissue. Has anyone in the sickle cell research community reached out to those scientists about uh, what so, they know and how they can help? Thank you for that, Johnny. What about that, Ashley? Do, do you, do, just on the idea of you know repairing the damage. The lot of the damage caused by sickle cell is permanent, so this is why d- disease modifiers are so important because you want to try to slow down the disease. And, and if you think about some of these therapies, gene therapies, bone marrow transplants, you want to try to do that before the disease really takes hold of the body. So Magalia talked about avascular necrosis, so that is bone death. So once a bone dies, you, you know, you, you have to replace it. It doesn't grow back. So I know there is a lot of research looking at things like reconnecting nerve tissues in the swords. And, and maybe in the future, that's something that will be a viable option. But once damage is done by sickle cell, it's it's usually permanent. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And Johnny also mentioned something, he, you know, he came back to being appalled. And I agree that idea that that healthcare professionals would treat the adult differently than the child with this disease. You've made a few references to just how people are treated. Uh, what is the, in general, what, what are the forces that are leading people to be treated, to be uh, mistreated? What ways are they being mistreated by the healthcare system? Is this because of the fact that this is so often uh, people of color or people of African descent? Yes. Okay. Let me try to, 
do this in 60 seconds. So <laughs> my background is sociology. And I think what I haven't done is explain the idea of stigma or, or prejudice. And so sickle cell sort of gets a double whammy. So there's the disease itself is stigmatized. So when the medical professionals sometimes hear the word sickle cell, they have all these preconceived notions because accurate education about the actual pathology of the disease is not taught. So if we think about me and you, if we don't know about something, or if you don't know what's in the dark room, or if you don't know what's behind the wall, it's up to your imagination to sort of fill what you don't know. So for sickle cell, if you're not taught the manifestation manifestation of the disease, the, the pathology of the disease, then what's left is space for you to fill those unknowns with any type of preconceived notions that you've learned from your colleagues or any one or two experiences that you've learned right. in the field. And so that's why you see that that shift and all that goes into to stigma. So that, that's why you see the differences when you're in pediatrics and when you're in the adult settings. Does that make sense? It does. We have to wrap up in these last 30 seconds. Your brother's dream was that the next generation of people with sickle cell would have it easier than he did. Do, do you think that is coming to fruition? I do. I really think so. We Marcus's greatest dream was to get the story out there. So when we started Sick Cells, when you Googled sickle cell disease, it was just some skinny, dark people in hospital beds. And that's mm. really what it was. Now, when you Google sickle cell, you see stories in major news outlets. You see beautiful portraits of families. You see people showing their scars. And I really, really am hopeful that in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see sickle cell in a, a completely different light. And people are going to be living a lot longer and a lot happier and healthier. That's wonderful. Ashley Valentine is the co-founder of the nonprofit Six Cells. Thanks so much for being with us, Ashley. I learned a lot tonight. Thank you for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. This week's show was produced by Regina Dehir. Our team also includes Karen Froman, Suzanne Gabber, Rahima Nasa, Lindsay Foster Thomas, Jared Paul, and Milton Ruiz. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out.